a lot of people just stare and we would love them to come over and say hi. Her heart is gigantic and it's so sweet that despite any delays, she is able to convey love. At this age, I am desperate for someone to come and say hi to us at the playground. I am desperate for someone to invite my daughter on a play date. I am desperate for someone to ask her to go trick-or-treating. I think it's so important as the parents of these children to take care of ourselves. And I think that it's oversaid that people don't know what that really looks like. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. A mirror text is something you can hold up and see yourself in. And a window text is something that allows you to see into the life of another. So there's so much that comes from this unexpected world that's so beautiful and incredible, you just sort of have to be open to find it. Leah Moore is a high school English teacher in New York. She is also the parent of an eight-year-old daughter, Jordan, who has Kriduchaw syndrome, and of two twin boys, Austin and Oliver, who are four years old. Leah has a wonderful blog, Loving You Big, and is currently finishing up a book by the same name. So Leah, thank you so much for being willing to come on the podcast and talk with me about your story. Yes, I'm very excited. Thank you for having me. So your daughter, Jordan, has Kriduchaw syndrome, which is already a little bit hard to pronounce for people who are not <laughs> French speakers. What, what does that mean? Yes, so Kriduchaw translates to cry of cat in French. It is a deletion of the fifth chromosome. It is a very rare diagnosis. Um, we also call it 5P minus because it's a deletion of that fifth chromosome. And it's a syndrome, which means that people who have it run a very big uh, spectrum of what the impact of it is. Okay. And did you have any issues during your pregnancy or with delivery? Or at what point did you and your husband realize that there might be something going on? And she was, Jordan was your first child, is yes. that right? Yes, my first child. Okay. So Jordan had um, a birth defect at birth, which we've since learned is unrelated. But she went under surgery. She, she went under anesthesia uh, at eight days old. And everything was fine. It was uh, something about her anal opening, and it was um, taken care of very quickly. And then she was a happy, giggly baby. We we said she had a dolphin-like cry. We used to call her a little dolphin. And around mm -hmm. six months, she started getting significant ear infections. And um, then and then the concern started. So then she wasn't meeting any of her milestones. At a year old, she wasn't meeting any milestones. She was meeting the milestones of, um, they actually said it was the zero percentile. So of course, by that point, we had already been speaking with doctors and looking into um, early intervention. And at around 13 months old, her pediatrician noticed that her brain, her head circumference hadn't been growing, which we now learned obviously is, um, well, it wasn't obviously because we didn't know, but it's microcephaly that her head size wasn't growing. And at that point, we, um, we knew it was something more significant. 
so we didn't know if there was an impact from the anesthesia at birth or there was a concern that perhaps she was deaf and everyone knew there was something wrong, but no one could find it. And at that moment with the microcephaly, they sent us to the geneticist and it took a significant amount of time to get the results back. But then the results came back that she had Kritisha, which was about 18 months. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I'm kind of surprised because you were in, living in New York City yes, at the time, is yeah. that right? Western New so York. I'm a little surprised that it took that long for you to get referred to a geneticist just living in New York City like Yes. You were. So I think because um, it wasn't it wasn't manifesting itself in a traditional way, which we've now learned some of the syndrome. So what we called her dolphin cry turned out to be that cat-like cry where Kritisha got its name from. But there was a lot of other things that people thought it could be. So when we went to, we, we went to an audiologist for a long time, we did a lot of uh, blood work to see if there was something autoimmune. So we were doing a lot of different things and, you know, it was just on the list to see the geneticist wasn't, it, the markers weren't there yet. So yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't until she was 18 months old. Okay. And when you met with a geneticist, I was, I'm always curious about people's experience with genetic counseling. Did you also meet with a genetic counselor yes. that was part of that team? Yes. Okay. I love mine and they okay. are amazing <laughs> and will take care of us for the rest of her life. Um, yes. Yeah, so we had met with a genetic counselor. She mapped our family. She explained lots of different uh, situations. I'm Ashkenazi Jewish. My husband isn't. So we looked into um, some of those pieces as well. And then uh, they both met with us to give us the results. Okay. And what were you initially told? What did they initially tell you that that diagnosis meant and what it would mean for, for your daughter and your family? So they are very positive, wonderful doctors, but they did give it to us pretty, pretty straight, which was that a lot of kids with Kritisha perhaps will not walk. They will perhaps not speak and that it's very taxing on the family, that we have to take care of our marriage as well as her, and that they will follow up with us every six months for the rest of her life and see what it looks like. Um, and we should be careful not to over Google, but they did give us the name of a really um, incredible support, which is the 5P- organization, which I emailed them that night. And it was, it was devastating. Um, it was a difficult car ride home and a, a difficult few years afterwards as well. Yeah. How, and were you and your husband both there for that? Yes. Yes. Okay. It's interesting that you mention, and I guess to me that you remember that they, they mentioned um, your marriage specifically, just because having an experience like that or a child with, with disabilities can be so difficult for, for a marriage. Do you, did you and your husband react like in similar ways to the news, do you feel like? Uh, that's a great question. So I think we... I think we're we're still reacting to the news and it changes for each of us. Um, we sort of have an ongoing pact that we can't both break down at the same time, that we kind of take turns uh -huh. of, of who's going to have a hard time when. And with any diagnosis, it keeps changing. So I can speak to more of that. But what she looks like at eight is obviously very different when she looked like at two. So at the time, um, I think I, I think that we were mourning her a life that we wanted to have for her. And we were both in a state of mourning. Um, mm -hmm. and, and 
one of the reasons I think it's important to tell these stories is that it doesn't have to be mourning. It just looks different than you thought. There's that famous poem of Welcome to Holland. I'm, sh I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with, but it's I think all the all the genetic counselors listening are familiar, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll we'll include I'll, we'll include it in the show notes. But yeah, for people who are not genetic counselors, like what? Yeah, what is that? Yeah, poem? so the concept is that you think you're going to go to Italy, and Italy is amazing, and it has all this delicious food, and you're going to see all these sights, and you don't end up in Italy, you end up in Holland, and Holland has windmills, and they're lovely, but it's not what you thought, and that part of handling the diagnosis is is really, I think I cried about her wedding when she was 18 months old. I remember holding her and saying, I don't know if she's gonna get married. I, I mean, forget the fact she might never walk or talk. I just, you have these sort of pre-exposed pre images of what life is supposed to look like. And sometimes that's the hardest part to overcome. Um, I also, my husband and I are both teachers. We teach theater, we teach English. And the concept of perhaps having a child that we wouldn't be able to communicate was something that we just didn't quite know what to do with. So I, I can't fully speak for him, but I was, I would use the word devastated. It was very difficult to get up to go to work the next day, but we just kept going day after day to, to make it happen. Yeah. And I mean, Jordan is still very young at eight yes. years old, but still a lot of years have gone by. So how, how have those years been different or similar from what you expected after getting that diagnosis and trying to adjust your expectations? So Jordan is taking everything that people said she wouldn't do and throwing it back in their faces with, with her like finesse. She is <laughs> joyful, like pink tutu, curly haired, smiley thing. She walks, she runs, um, she speaks. It takes a minute to understand what she's saying, but people who are familiar with her absolutely understand every word. She, she has surpassed every expectation of what they told us she would have. And we 100% thank the early intervention and the team of therapists that we have had since that day working with her around the clock. She has had so much therapy. She's actually getting therapy in the room next door while I'm, while I'm speaking to you. Um, it's a constant, but it's how she, it, we've helped, we've met people who can teach her how to learn. And it's incredible. Yeah. And I think I've, I've heard or read you say elsewhere that you've encountered a lot of other parents, of course, with, you know, children with the same diagnosis or other disabilities who haven't had that Correct. same um, amount of it. Because it really depends, like you were in New York City, now you're in Westchester, but those services are so dependent on where people live, yes. right? So when we went to our first Credishaw conference, we met people all over the country, actually all over the world, that people came and we, Jordan had approximately 25 to 30 hours of early intervention, all paid for by Westchester. And we met people who had three. And we very quickly learned that the, the, the federal breakdown of this system is not equitable. So we actually did a uh, fundraiser in our community. We raised $20,000 to give back to the organization to support other families who could use these services because there's so much data and there's so many studies that the earlier you can get a child to practice these skills, the more they can 
advance. Um, and, and with all things, it becomes, it becomes your new normal. So for what we wanted for Jordan, the fact that she walks or talks is incredible. I don't know if she'll read or write. That's what we're working on right now. Other kids with Krita Shah do, but we each have our own milestone and we keep working on those therapies to do so. So that is a place where we need more advocacy to make early intervention equitable. Yeah. And you have, uh, you have two twin sons also, right, who are four yes. years old. So how, um, after getting the diagnosis and like, did you, I'm sure that this kind of affected how you thought about having future children since, you know, with your first child experience was so different from what you'd expected. So how did you go about thinking about um, expanding your family and having more children? Yes. Yeah, so um, I think I don't even remember it, looking back, it's almost this crazy decision. We were so up to our ears with everything with Jordan. And I think that's actually why we thought we should add another child to our family. Um, we, we are teachers and we understand special needs. And we wanted to be a family that had a special needs child as opposed to being a special needs family. And what we thought was if we had another child, um, we would, as parents, also get some of those traditional experiences. And more importantly, our Jordan would have someone to be with, to model things for her. Um, there's always that pretty serious discussion of when you have a special needs child along uh, with significant delays of who will take care of them. Um, it's a lot of pressure to put on a unborn child that you might not have, but there was something about our family saying, how will we care for her? Um, so for lots of those reasons, and we weren't quite done having children, um, we did, the genetic results did show that my husband was a carrier for Krita Shah, and we had to make the decision whether we wanted to try to have more children naturally or whether we wanted some support. So we ended up um, going through IVF PGD, where they would test um, the embryos in advance before implanting them, which is how we got twins. And so that responsibility, that weight for siblings is actually kind of nicely spread out between two Yes. <laughs> well, when, when we had the choice and they said, you know, there's two here, um, we, had, we did two rounds of IVF, which is a very difficult process. And we were told that most likely would not be successful because the amount um, of the amount of, um, I guess it would be embryos, right, that were suitable, that a lot of them had, were, had Krita Shah. Um, so we ended up with two, and they said, do you want two? And we thought, well, that makes it maybe easier for everybody. So let's just mm -hmm. make more chaos in our house, which is what we did. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you're already up to right. your ears, you know, like, why not why add not? two baby boys Exactly, to yeah. exactly. <laughs> Um, so most people, I think like usually when we think of someone being a carrier, it's more often, like most often for an autosomal recessive condition. Um, but with Kredu Shah, like you'd said, it's a piece of chromosome five that's missing. So in your case, it was actually, it's your husband who has a balanced translocation, right? But when that's passed down, it's possible that it's unbalanced. And so that's, that's where the Kredu Shah came from Correct. in your case, Correct. And right? we actually, um, we're a great family to talk about genes because my daughter um, has Krita Shah, my husband's a carrier. One of my twins is a carrier and one of my twins is not. And then we also found out that my husband's sister um, has 
7p minus. So the family is affected by the fifth and seventh chromosome, and we have all the different variations of what it looks like. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. When did you learn that your husband was a carrier and that IVF with reimplantation genetic diagnosis, PGD, would be a good option for you? When, when Jordan got her diagnosis, the whole family got uh, tested. Um, my sister was also at the age in a relationship was wanting to have children as well. Um, and uh, Zach's sister was not planning on having children, but we thought it was important for the whole family to know where all this was coming from. A lot of Credishaw cases are spontaneous, but in our case, it was not. So we're rare within rare. Okay. Yeah. And how, how did you go about sharing that information? Because I think sometimes it's really hard for family members to share that information. Either not everyone is talking to one another or not everyone is really happy to hear that <laughs> or understand. Yeah, it. I think, um, I think because it's a good question. I think because Jordan was in the world and we were all Luckily, both sides of our family, my husband's family and my family, are warm, loving, go-getting kind of people and with information can make anything possible. So we just presented it as a fact. This is why this happened. Um, if anyone else is thinking about having children, this is what it looks like. My husband um, and his sister were the only two that were impacted on their family. Um, my mm -hmm. mother-in-law had passed away while I was pregnant with Jordan, um, which was also traumatic for different reasons, of course. So we weren't able to mm -hmm. speak to her, but the geneticist, geneticist thinks that perhaps she was the spontaneous mutation and then that produced that line. And then for my side of the family, it didn't impact anybody. So it was more just about facts. Right. Okay. Um, and what is what is Jordan's relationship like with her brothers now that she's so she's eight years old, they're four years old, but in developmentally, are they farther ahead of her in some ways? Like, does, does is it kind of like a I'm guessing it's not a traditional older sister? It's dynamic, not. It's actually very sweet. Um, my twins are also not developing exactly at the same pace. So one of my twins um, has also is, goes through early intervention. And the other twin um, is, is teaching Jordan many things. So he's memorizing some books and shows her the pages. He has a lot of questions about why doesn't she do things the way that he does, or why isn't she doing good listening, or why is it hard for her on the playground when he can do things. Um, that's Oliver. Austin Moore is just happy to be playing outside and isn't quite noticing yet. <laughs> but it's it's really sweet for us as a family. Jordan also has um, really incredible cousins. Some of them are younger, some of them are older, and it's just become kind of everybody jumps in to support her the best they can. Um, given her choice, she puts on a dance outfit and is dancing with her shadow at all times, and everyone just kind of knows <laughs> that that's what she's doing. Um, they asked why she spoke like a baby for a long time or um, why is she repeating grades because she's been repeating grades or why does she have different buses? But we are very grateful that we have very loving children. Jordan uh, wants to marry her brothers. She um, tried to do typical big sister things and tuck them in and help give them medicine if they have 
if they're sick. So her her heart is gigantic and it's so sweet that despite any delays, she is able to convey love. And it's this really beautiful, chaotic family. We are very visible when we leave the house. People can hear <laughs> us and see us coming. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. Did you know that when it comes to planning a family, the ideal time to meet with a genetic counselor is actually before you become pregnant? Speaking with a genetic counselor can help you to understand the many different testing options available to you both before and during pregnancy. From carrier screening to diagnostic testing options and everything in between, Gray Genetics is here to help. In a preconceptual genetic counseling appointment, a certified genetic counselor will also evaluate your family history and discuss any known or suspected hereditary conditions. They can also help you to understand the likelihood of passing on those conditions to the next generation. By connecting with a genetic counselor over the phone or through secure video conferencing, discussing genetic testing or other preconceptual options is more convenient than ever. To learn more about preconceptual genetic counseling or how to make an appointment, go to graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. Speaking of the visibility issue, I think I was reading, um, I think I was reading a post on your blog where you talk about wanting a label mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, that, that it's, it's it kind of wrinkles if someone sees you having a child with special needs and feels pity because there's a lot of joy, but at the same time, that's such a huge part of your mm-hmm. identity and your identity for, for the family. Um, so what is, what is that like in different um, public scenarios for you? And I'm sure it's different if it's, you know, somewhere they, they already know you like your school as opposed to somewhere more random like the grocery Yeah, store. it's, it's very complicated. And like I said, um, with each phase, we're getting used to different things. So at eight, it is very obvious what my daughter cannot do because when she was younger, you kind of are in that toddler phase and kids develop differently and I could pick her up and take her out of a store. But now that she's eight and traditionally in second grade, um, she, there's, a, there's a very big separation between her peers her neurotypical peers and her. So sometimes we get very rude comments uh, from parents and children. Um, Sometimes we get incredible people who understand why I have a child sprawled out during in the grocery store and um, help to pick her up, help me to get her to the front door. Um, Sometimes she's not with me. I see another parent with a child who's clearly having a difficult time and I want to help, but I don't want to overstep because I don't have my daughter with me to have that sort of unwritten code. So there's a lot to navigate, which I have learned is more about my identity than hers. Um, So she doesn't have a lot of friends, um, but she has a small little network and, and I don't know if she's sad about that. I don't know if that's me projecting what I want it to be like for her. So that's the phase I'm in right now is just trying to like to raise an eight-year-old to begin with, and then an eight-year-old who who has some trouble connecting. Yeah. How do you, you mentioned like sometimes you do get rude comments, like what kind of comments would you get or in what context and how do you respond to those? Uh, so I've never been one to be good at a confrontation. So some of them happened when she was younger. Um, Jordan was in diapers Till she was six and a half. And 
um, that's very obvious. So we were changing for dance class and people would make comments about that. Um, you know, oh, the, the children would ask and then the parents would say things like, I don't know, she's still a baby. There must be something wrong with her. Um, or she had orthotics the, um, up, up to her legs and people would ask lots of questions. And for all of those, I never said anything because I didn't know how to say, excuse me, let me educate you which is ironic because mm -hmm. I'm a teacher, um, but there's time and place. And I've sort of equated to the way I handle the, when someone talks about the R word, we're talking about cognitive intellectual disabilities, that there are times that I hear someone say that word and I, I, I stop and I, I want to say something, but I'm learning that there's a time and place to be effective with that education. So in our smaller communities where I'm more, more comfortable, I might, um, introduce Jordan and say, you know, she runs a little differently or this is what she's wearing and she can't wait to play with you. Um, I've had training. We have a parent trainer to help us understand that language. Most recently, um, she, because of the sensory needs of her condition, she is always in pajamas or a wig. Um, so we get a lot of comments like, it's not Halloween. Why are these children like that? Which isn't directly rude, but it's it's not necessary to comment on someone else's child. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it hurts, it hurts me because my whole family is listening and my sons might say, why did they say that about Halloween? Isn't, you know, Jordan just wants to wear this head to toe descendants right. costume. So um, <laughs> we've just sort of be herself and figure nobody else, it's nobody else's business. Um, and we try to create situations where she's safe, of course. It's, and again, she doesn't know any of it is happening. So right. she's as happy as can be. Right. But it's still, yeah, it affects you. And then your sons, of right. course, are, are noticing it. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure something like, like a wig or dressing in a certain way when kids are, you know, like probably three, four, five, people are less surprised. Right. <laughs> because like more neurotypical kids are going to be like, have some very random outfits. But then as she gets older, it probably becomes like more surprising. Yes. To people. And then it, produces more questions, which we're happy to answer. But a lot of people just stare and we would love them to come over and say hi. We'd love them to come talk to us um, as opposed to just kind of glancing in our direction. So, yeah. What, like, that's interesting. So if they were to come over and say, like, what would you want them to say? Like to come over and say hello, but to ask a question or because I feel like that someone might think is also time and place. Like they should like, what, tell me about your daughter. Yeah, you know? I, I have spent the last eight years trying to answer this question. <laughs> but I think I always just feel like with anything going on in the world, the more people can connect and just talk to each other, you see what happens. So rather than just staring at us, if they came over, my daughter's first instinct is say, I, I'm Jordan. This is my mom. What's your name? Um, and then sometimes I translate that for the person if they couldn't hear that that's what she said. But even if it just started a conversation, most parents pick up pretty quickly that there's something going on. And, if, and kids um, by nature don't seem to care. It's, I think that you learn to care. You learn to exclude this portion of our society. It's that legacy of ableism, I think. So I think in the simplest way, it would be, hi, what's your name? I like your wig. And we can see where it goes from there. Um, I don't have to talk about Kritisha or bring up anything, but I'm happy to if it comes up. So I would start with just a hi. 
I mean, it's interesting too how you, you said um, earlier, you know, it's like ironic to, to, about having trouble educating people because you're mm -hmm. a teacher, but as a high school English teacher, I mean, you have a classroom full of students that you get to spend time with like every day for like nine months. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's not like randomly passing people in the street and like educating them about Midsummer Night's Dream or anything. Exactly. <laughs> like, here's iambic pentameter. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and what I, what I have done, it matches the curriculum of I teach ninth grade and we have actually, we study Of Mice and Men and the end of Of Mice and Men, spoiler, although it came out a really long time ago, so I think most people <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think people have had the opportunity <laughs> it's to safe, read it. Right? You know, if, you, if you haven't read it, stop listening stop now, it. read it. It's a short book. <laughs> um, the character uh, Lenny, who has an intellectual disability, is killed, I'm using air quotes, sort of for his own safety, for his own protection. And it's very problematic to read that in 2019. So it allows, uh, it allows me to educate students, which I was doing prior to my daughter's diagnosis, um, to talk about how characters are conveyed in books and the time and place that a text is written and what does that look like now, and to give them new information about characters like Julia who just joined Sesame Street or advertisements like Target that's using children with Down syndrome, that if they start paying attention to it, how emojis and the world is continuing to change. And we have that conversation for lots of different isms, not just ableism with, you know, racism and sexism. And so it, that's part of my curriculum. So I think that helps that I have, I have 100 students a year learning some of this work. And it helps me feel like there's a way I can empower people to know more about some of those conversations that are left unsaid in our society. Yeah. And you have a you have a blog called Loving You Big, um, and I've read a little bit on there. And you also have um, that I would recommend to people. There's a 12 minute documentary with you and your husband and Jordan. Um, it's from 2012, so she's yes. younger, but that's that was like lovely to watch and really well done. It was like one of one of your friends actually, who's the documentary yes, filmmaker. Yes, her name is right? Emily Dombroff, and she's incredible. And we made that uh, when we did the fundraiser that I spoke of. Um, that we wanted to help raise funds to to allow more people to have therapy and support, OTPT speech. Um, and it's it's incredible. I get um, emails from kids all over the place studying genes in their biology class, uh, families with Krita Shah saying, thank you. I, um, you know, I'm part of the 5P minus organization, but it was also nice to meet a real family and see real people. So we're actually planning on doing a follow-up one about now that she's eight and some of that uh, journey to have a longitudinal study to give some people information. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. I was kind of like wishing for the same thing when I watched it. I was like, okay, this is, and I was like, oh wait, she's so much older yeah. now. Like, I wonder what's going on yeah, now. She, now she's a little camera shy, so we're going to have to trick her. But I think if we get her a new wig, she'll probably be right in board. <laughs> feel confident. Yeah, feel confident. <laughs> and then I started the blog um, when she was a little bit older. This, I actually started my first piece as a model of a personal narrative to my, to my students. Um, I wrote the first piece called The Irony of Language about being someone who teaches words and uses words all the time and having a child that doesn't have them at the time she didn't have them. And I just put it out there. Most blogs are probably started to help the blogger. Um, I needed a place to make sense of all of my thoughts and feelings. And it's been so incredibly rewarding um, that it's 
I just kept going with it and um, I'm turning it into a, a book as well. So it's been a really beautiful journey for me as her mom. And the book is, will have the same title, right? Loving You Big? The book has the same title, um, but it, it, has, it has a similar uh, idea that they're vignettes, that they're short pieces of writing, but it, it goes through the journey of who Jordan is, how our family came to be, some of those real life struggles of what it looks like to raise a child with significant special needs and then moves towards some of those advocacy pieces. Um, I, I noticed that a lot of the books about genetic um, situations and a lot of special needs families have a religious undertone, a, a God-like undertone. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it wasn't giving me the support that I needed. And I really struggled to find a book. There's all those books when you're pregnant, like, here's what it's going to be like, sort of girlfriend to girlfriend. And I, I couldn't find anything so colloquial and so friendly. So um, that's what inspired the book. Great. Yeah. And so, um, and you're not sure yet who will be publishing it, right? But maybe at the end of this year, it'll be available? Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. Well, we'll include, we'll include the link to your blog in our show notes. And then um, whenever you do have that information, let us know. And we can definitely upla- update that in the show notes and on the website. Thank you. And I, I also encourage if anyone's listening and wants to connect, I used to write to a lot of um, blogs to connect to them and try to say hi. And I found that people don't often write back. Um, but because I'm not famous and because I'm an English teacher raising three children, I have time to write back. <laughs> so I've, I've sort of made it my promise that if you write to me, I will absolutely write back. And I have learned so much from my readers um, and from people watching the YouTube documentary that I can then try things out with Jordan and with my um, other children and with my marriage. So it's this beautiful community that it doesn't have to even be genetic space. It's just about being a family. Yeah. And what's the best way for someone to reach out to you? Uh, so they can email me at, the, at lovingyoubig okay. at gmail.com. Okay. We'll include yeah. that in the show notes. Okay. And what would you say to someone listening who has a child who's recently been diagnosed with a genetic condition and they're not sure what, what the child's development is going to be like, or they just have a child with, with special needs and they're maybe a little bit earlier in the process of kind of trying to grapple with that? What would you want them to know? Um, I would want them to know that there is a continual I want them to know, first of all, that they will laugh again and that joy is possible and that in their darkest moments, it might seem like, how can I do this? How am I going to find more time in the day, more money in my pocket, more resources? And what I think happens is the people in your life that are there for you, they, sh- they will show up. So you, you learn to ask for help in ways that you didn't already know. You expand your vocabulary and learn words like hypotonia and microcephaly and things (laughs) that you never thought you'd be able to say. And that every day you, just like you didn't know what it was like to be a parent, um, having this new label to time and, and to be kind to yourself about that process. So one day, you know, you might be making millions of phone calls and organizing out the paperwork. And the next day you're eating a pint of ice cream in front of Netflix, because that's all you can manage. And 
I think it's so important as the parents of these children to take care of ourselves. And I think that it's over said that people don't know what that really looks like. So I remember I went and got a manicure and I came back and I was like, well, that didn't help. Like I took the time for myself that all the books say, you know, put your oxygen mask on first, but <laughs> it wasn't the right kind of support. So for me, I needed to write. Um, we have a friend in town who started a, uh, a baseball league for his son because that's what he needed to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that we all have to be kind to ourselves and know that it's a journey and that we don't have to do it by ourselves, that we are a community of people out there, that we have family and friends, organizations that already exist. And then as for what milestones your child will meet, um, I, am, I am not gonna love my child any differently if she can't read with me. I hope that she can. I will never be the one to hold her back. Um, I was prepared to carry her everywhere and, and we speak in the way that we can and it, you just redefine what that relationship looks like. So it's painful and it's also so beautiful and so joyful to see when they can do something that nobody thought they could. I mean, there's never a dry eye in the house. It's incredible. So my long-winded advice. Yeah, no, that's good advice. That's, that's interesting about, you know, something like, so like a, like, I guess a short answer test on like, what's an example of self-care, like get a yeah. manicure. <laughs> and it's not, it's not like you just like, oh, check the box. and like, right. no, I feel fine. And it, like, <laughs> it's so frustrating because I did all the things you were quote unquote supposed to do. And I, I ended up just feeling guilty that I was gone and it was $14 that I didn't have before. And, you know, I, or I didn't, you know, should have spent on something else. So it took a really long time to learn what that self-care meant for me, which is very different for my husband and everybody else we've met. What does self-care look like for your husband? For my husband? Um, so he has to get up at 4 a.m., even though no one's awake yet. My daughter wakes up very early, but she's not quite up at that time, just so he can have a cup of coffee by himself. <laughs> That's And it's like a no, no talking time. So he... Whatever time happens, um, he has learned to watch a lot of really strange and beautiful documentaries. I think he's refound some of his childhood um, playing video games with some of his friends. And he just discovered that he is an incredible um, barbecuer. He smokes <laughs> meat. He's from Texas and makes these gorgeous smoked briskets that take 18 hours. And it's a hobby and he's so happy doing it. And He's teaching Jordan how to do it. Um, so it's just about finding some space and time for each other so that you can be a person and then also a parent and then a special needs parent. There's lots of layers to it. Back to the issue of how children and families with special needs are seen by others in society who aren't really familiar with, with what that's like and that experience. Like, what would you say to those people, like people who maybe want to do a better job, but just have no familiarity? Um, like, what's something that they can do that might be a little different to, to just like be a better oh, human I love that. in this world? Um, we should all try that, right? So so one of the things that I love as a teacher is we talk about window and mirror texts. Mm. And texts are not just defined by the books we read, anything, people or texts, commercials. And uh, a mirror text is something you can hold up and see yourself in. And a window text is something that allows you to see into the life of another. 
So I would say for people who are trying to be a good human about anything, whether it's about special needs or not, to expose themselves to some window texts and really learn what life is is like beyond the stigmas, beyond the stereotypes. What does it really look like? And the more that we can learn through those window texts, I think that it expands our own understanding. Um, so whether that's meeting someone at this age, I am desperate for someone to come and say to hi to us at the playground. Mm. I am desperate for someone to invite my daughter on a play date. I am desperate for someone to ask her to go trick or treating. And that perhaps that parent says, oh, why don't you invite that little girl and see if she wants to join us? Um, my neighbor actually did that. And then I spent the whole time crying because I was so excited. Which I'm <laughs> learning is probably a strange response as well. So that, you know, I have to get on board. Um, but a simple act of kindness goes a really long way when they don't realize that it took us three hours to even transition to get to that playground, how kind it would be just to come over and say hi and see if we want to go down the slide with them. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say about that. Yeah, that's really, I've never heard that before, the mirror and the window text. I really like that. Yeah, me too. And I'm wondering too, just thinking about something like a play date, mm -hmm. like um, I wonder if, you know, I don't know exactly what the school situation is like, but I wonder if you have parents who might think of that, but then think, oh, it's such a big deal for them to get things together, or it's going to add a burden, or if people might hesitate thinking that it'd be hard for you or not really knowing like what your what Jordan is capable of, and like how it would work if, if they would be like, have you suggested playdates or people have been um, responsive or been unresponsive? It's a or? really great question. And based on where you live in the country, this would have a different answer. So New York, is one of the lower states on the issues of inclusion, which means Jordan is in a self-contained class mm. and she has some opportunities throughout the day to be in a traditional educational setting, but it means that she doesn't meet as many students as someone in California, for example, that is one of the most inclusive states. So we've met children with Krita Shah who have very different needs than Jordan does. Some of them are more significant than Jordan's and they're in a general education classroom and have more of a one-to-one -one aid. So this brings up a bigger issue about education and what's the best for the child and um, the least restrictive environment. But what happens as a result is we don't have as many opportunities to meet as many people. So I haven't actually asked for a play date that's been turned down because I've really only asked for play dates with people that Jordan knows who would then be in her self-contained classes. I have put her in some general education environments for, for a dance class, for example, and I found it to be very challenging. Um, again, maybe more for me than for her, which is why I'm trying to figure that out as well, where people are um, not really talking to her. They've pushed her off to the side, not in a mean way. They're just talking to their own friends and she isn't quite keeping up with, with them. Mm -hmm. So it's... Um, so it's a question of how do we get her included in a way that makes her feel safe and still have a sense of dignity? And how do we continue to expose more people to her and vice versa? Um, yes. Did that answer your question? Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I, I guess I've never thought about it being a difference on state level where, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes there's a class where it's just like kids with special needs and sometimes it's more integrated. 
Do you feel like besides that um, piece of missing opportunities to just interact with kids um, who are also like more neurotypical, um, do you feel like the education is has like there's an advantage to the education of being more separated out or that it's really ideal to have that one on one aid help in a in just like a more mixed standard classroom? That is such a difficult uh, question because I think it's really specific to the needs of the child. Mm -hmm. So from my 15 years of teaching experience, I know that who I have in my classroom in front of me might not look the same each year, but those particular needs can be met in my room with modifications and accommodations. So I think that it's based on your school district, it's based on the support, it's based on the pedagogy, it's based on the philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's hard to make that one big answer. I think as long as your child's needs are being met, my daughter is learning. And my school was receptive to hear that I wanted her to be more social. So they found a way for have her join in during, um, I think it was a kindergarten science class. She was much older than everybody else, but she still, she thought it was really fun to go in. So I think, I think for, um, if anyone's listening, who's looking for that advocacy work, it's important to keep asking those questions to find out how your child's educational needs can be met, but then also their social emotional needs, as well as their physical safety as well. Right. And you'd mentioned uh, the 5P minus society, and we'll include that as well as your blog in the show notes. Are there other... um, other websites or organizations that you would recommend just to parents with kids with special needs who have questions more generally just about early intervention? I'm so sure it's like difficult with everything being different in different states, but yeah, it's a little difficult. I have found um, for us right, right now, that's part of understanding as we stay pretty focused. So we focus really on 5P minus. Um, we'd eventually like her to be a part of the Special Olympics. We haven't really done more of that. I've recently just found a gorgeous organization out of California called Shane's Inspiration that works on um, adaptable playground. I think they're based more on the West Coast, but I've uh, been looking up to see if there's partners to get more adaptable playgrounds for the East Coast. Um, And then through early intervention, I didn't use a lot of websites. I mostly used the people and the agencies that came with them, which is going to be state by state. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So we'll include your blog in the show, show notes and that video, the different links and resources that we mentioned. And definitely when your book is out, let us know. I will. <laughs> um, I will. That'll be great for to update so that people can find that too. I will. I, I just want to say, I think it's so important. I love your mission to, to get to the real people behind all of the science. I've made that into my own words, but I I think that's a really, um, I think it's a really important piece because there's so much I didn't know and there's so much I didn't even know to ask. And if I could have heard real people, I'm sure they were out there. I just wasn't (laughs) sure where to find them. Um, I think it would have helped me move along my journey a a little bit more. So I, I appreciate that this exists. I mean, it's interesting that, um, Blogs have helped with that and blogs are less new. And then podcasts, I think, are probably have kind of taken off since Jordan was born, but have yes, made that easier. Yes. And then I've had so many, since I started this podcast, I've just had so many guests bring up social media. And it took me a while to realize like, oh, I guess we had email and the internet, but it's kind of new that there's social media and that people connect through social media in ways that they didn't before too. Yes, it's it's unbelievable. I was using Google Translate to speak to someone 
across the world about Kritishan. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. So there's so much that comes from from this unexpected world that's so beautiful and incredible. You just sort of have to be open to find it. So definitely social media helps with that. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.